0: Welcome back to Certain Comfort in Uncertain Times, a look at the book of Revelation that we are filming during the COVID-19 crisis in 2020. And last time we looked at one of the more famous passages in the book of Revelation, the mark of the beast. And today we see the the counterpart to that. We see the flip side. We see another mark, uh, this time the mark of the lamb instead of the mark of the beast. We're not only filming this in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis, but we're also filming this uh, less than two weeks away from a presidential election here in the United States. And uh, this has been a very uh, charged time uh, in our society, in our culture over the past few months. And we've very much been dividing up into two sides of Republicans versus Democrats, of those supporting President Trump and those supporting Joe Biden and those Um, And that's been reflective of even um, other divisions that have taken place throughout our culture over the the, the course of this year as racial strife and protests have sprung up around the country. And you have a society that is very, very divided. And we see uh, a very divided society as well as we Uh, Look at Revelation 13, the last couple of weeks, and now Revelation 14 this week. Except the divisions are not the ones that we normally think of. They are not divisions based on Republican or Democrat. They are not divisions based on race. They are not divisions based on socioeconomic status. Rather, they are divisions, really the only uh, division that matters, uh, historically speaking, in Scripture. Those who belong to God and those who belong to the God of this age. And here in the book of Revelation, that is those who side with the beast and those who side with the lamb. And last week at the, in the second half of Revelation 13, we looked at what characterizes those who follow the beast. And today in Revelation 14, we're going to look at what characterizes those who follow the lamb. And so, follow along with me as I read Revelation chapter 14, and then we'll briefly look at a few aspects of what the chapter tells us about those who claim to follow the Lamb in these end times. Then I looked, and there was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion. And with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I heard a sound from heaven like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder. The sound I heard was like harpists playing on their harps. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. But no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women since they remained virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were redeemed from humanity as the firstfruits for God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying high overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He spoke with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another, a second angel, followed, saying, It has fallen, Babylon the great has fallen. She made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. And another, a third angel, followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so they will rest from their labors since their works follow them. Then I looked and there was a white cloud and one like the Son of Man was seated on the cloud with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple, crying out in a loud voice to the one who was seated on the cloud, Use your sickle and reap, for the time to reap has come, since the harvest of the earth is ripe. So the one seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Then another angel who also had a sharp sickle came out of the temple in heaven. Yet another angel who had authority over fire came from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the vineyard of the earth, because its grapes have ripened. So the angel swung his sickle at the earth and gathered the grapes from the vineyard of the earth, and he threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. Then the press was trampled outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press up to the horse's bridles for about 180 miles. As has been true throughout this series, we are not going to get bogged down in all the symbolism In this chapter, our goal is not to identify one-to-one correlations with every possible symbol uh, in order to try and create timelines and charts and dates and and figure out exactly when Christ is coming back or figure out exactly who different people are supposed to represent. Instead, we are looking for what is supposed to provide us with certain comfort in uncertain times, that we as the Church living in these end times— uh, filled with the uncertainty of war and disease uh and and poverty and and uh, um, natural disasters and and all kinds of uncertainty that we live through, how can we find certain comfort in what the book of Re- revelation says because that is the purpose of the book it's to provide believers who are the intended audience with comfort uh in the cross of Jesus Christ in his current reign and in his eventual return. And so we are going to look at four aspects uh, from this chapter that should give us certain comfort, and they are all connected with the mark of the Lamb. Again, in Revelation 13, we saw the mark of the beast, and we put a lot of emphasis on the mark of the beast, but the emphasis is really in chapter 14 on the mark of the Lamb. Because the mark of the beast is is coded. It is symbolic. The mark of the beast, the, the, the worshipers of the beast are marked not with a name, but with a number of a name. I don't know why it was uh, put in symbols, but it might have been because, yes, there is some future figure who will be the final Antichrist. Uh, but there's also this idea running through this book that this is what's occurring throughout the church age. The spirit of the Antichrist has been in the world since the first century uh, and at work. And these are things that we all experience throughout the church age. And so the the mark of the beast is a number, but the mark of the lamb is a name. The mark of the lamb is definite. We don't have to question uh, who it's referring to. Uh, Those who do not worship the beast, but instead worship the lamb are marked with the Lamb's name, and with His Father's name. And so there is no ambiguity with the mark of the Lamb. The emphasis is on the mark of the Lamb and what that means and what that describes. And so we're going to look quickly at four aspects, three positive and one negative, of what uh, the mark of the Lamb actually is. And Uh, Quickly before we do that, the 144,000, if you remember from the last time we looked at it, is a symbolic number. It's referring to all of the saints, uh, Old and New Testament, the completion of God's people. And that numbering is supposed to be intended to remind us of the census numbering in the Old Testament. So it is describing an army. So this very much is the army of the Lamb. And yet, as we see with these aspects of the Lamb's mark, this is not an army like any that we would ever come up with on our own. And so, four aspects, the first of which is that the Lamb's army is marked for worship. The Lamb's army is marked for worship. Again, starting in verse 1, I looked and there was a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. We said last week that the mark of the beast was very much about worship. Uh, The mark of the beast was given to those who would worship the beast and his idol. And so it only follows that the mark of the lamb is given to those who worship the lamb and his father, those who worship the God of God. Of Israel, those who worship God revealed in Scripture, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so they are marked with the name of the Lamb and with his Father's name. But even more so than the mark just being about worship, it then goes on to describe worship. In verse 3, they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, but no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed. From the earth. The army is not pictured as an army. It's pictured as a worship team. And this follows what we see throughout scripture, even in the Old Testament. If you think of those, some of those famous uh, biblical military leaders and battle scenes, and time after time after time, God brought up an army that was nothing like the world's armies. We might think of Gideon and how God just pared down his army until it was a very small number. Or we might think of Jericho, where they conquered the city not by fighting, but by marching around the city singing and chanting and blowing trumpets. Uh, The point of it all was always because it was going to be God who fought for them, that it was God who won the victory and not the army itself. And the same thing is true here in Revelation 14, and we'll pick up on that a little bit more later on. But this is an army not that fights, it's an army that worships. This is an army of worshipers singing a new song, a song that only those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb can learn. And we know that they are worshipers as well because of verse 4, these are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women since they remained virgins. And again, this is about worship, uh, just like we see in the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 and elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, the, the, that, uh, the sexual immorality, and we saw it even in Revelation 2 and 3 with the letters to the church, the sexual immorality that was often in mind was the sexual immorality that took place in the temples of the gods or in the temple of the emperor. It was involved with emperor worship or worship of the pagan Gods. And so the fact that these 144,000 had not defiled themselves with women since they remained virgins does not mean uh, that this is a literal number of people, all of whom are virgins who have never slept with a woman, or even that they're all male, but rather that it is this picture of God's people who in their worship have remained pure. They have not given themselves over to the temple prostitutes they have not prostituted themselves in the worship of these false gods or in the worship of the emperor and again the, the beast is very much connected to the state and so the worship of the beast would have involved the worship of the emperor the worship of the state's gods the prostituting of oneself in the temple and so these one hundred and forty-four thousand have remained pure they have not gone back to worship the false gods. They have not worshipped the emperor. They do not worship the state or the beast. They worship the lamb. They have not defiled themselves. And so the lamb's army is marked for worship. It is a group of worshipers, those whose loyalty and worship is given only to the lamb and to his father. But secondly, the lamb's army is marked for witness. The Lamb's army is marked for witness. These ideas of worship and witness are connected. Uh, One of the the main reasons why it was important that these 144,000 have not compromised in their worship is that it means that they have not compromised in their witness. They have not departed from the worship of the Lamb to worship the beast. They have not departed from the marriage bed of the Lamb to go and lie with the state, with a political party, with a political agenda, with an earthly kingdom instead of the heavenly kingdom. And therefore, they are uncompromised in their witness. Picking up in the middle of verse 4, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They follow Jesus. They walk in his footsteps. They uh, live as though they are citizens of the heavenly kingdom instead of the earthly kingdom. They were redeemed from humanity as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. And this is verse 5, where no lie is found in their, their mouths and they are blameless, doesn't mean they never lied in their earthly lives or they were without sin, or it's not even referencing the fact that uh, in Christ we are blameless. Rather, it is talking about their witness to the Lamb. They were uncompromised in their witness. And this is something that speaks directly to us, in the uh, charged atmosphere in which we are living, in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of a presidential election, in the midst of social and cultural unrest all around us, as it becomes very easy for us to stop witnessing to the lamb and instead start to bear witness to a whole bunch of other things and as though that's not bad enough, we never really do just that. What we really do is we take our, wit- our our bearing witness to the Lamb and we mix it with bearing witness to other things. And so our witness to the Lamb becomes mixed with our witness to a political party or to a presidential candidate or to a certain agenda that we uh, have some kind of... Um, a drive and zeal for. And instead of just keeping those two witnesses separately, because we all do that, we all witness to the Lamb, but also witness to our favorite restaurant, witness to our favorite sports team, witness to a whole bunch of other things that, that we enjoy and that we want other people to enjoy as well. But there's certain things, really things that become our idols, that we blend in with our witness to the Lamb. And in the end, our witness isn't so much to Christ. It isn't so much to Christianity. It's to this syncretism. And in our times currently, uh, that is often a syncretism of things like Christianity and American nationalism. Uh, And so we get these things mixed up. And in so doing, lies are found in our mouths. Because we have this thing that is not absolute truth and we've mixed it with this thing that is And so in order to keep that going that thing that is not absolute has to become absolute and So we might not set out trying to tell lies uh, trying to exaggerate trying to fudge the truth a little trying to leave out information trying to spread falsehoods about people who oppose that other thing That we're bearing witness to. But the end result is that we do that. And that instead of following the Lamb wherever he goes, we start to divert a little bit. And we start to sow those lies from our mouth. We are no longer blameless in our witness. But that's what the mark of the Lamb is intended to communicate. We who have the mark are those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. We are those who bear witness without lie and without blame. And that is incredibly difficult for us in this time, but it is incredibly vital that we make sure that we are bearing witness for the right thing, that we are bearing witness to the Lamb and not to anything else, that we are following the Lamb wherever He goes even when that path is in opposition to the beast, as it is here. I mean, chapter 14, the mark of the Lamb, those 144,000 are pitted against the beast and his followers from the second half of chapter 13. And so the way of the Lamb goes against the state. It goes against our earthly kingdoms. It goes against our political parties. And if we are not willing to follow the Lamb... When he goes against our presidential candidate. When he goes against our political party. When he goes against the little earthly kingdoms that we've set up. And that we like to to boast in being a part of. If we don't follow the lamb when he goes against those things. Then we don't follow the lamb wherever he goes. If we don't bear witness to the lamb even against our presidential candidate. Against our political party. Against our earthly kingdoms then we are not bearing witness with no lie being found in our mouths. We're not bearing witness in a blameless way. And so the Lamb's army is marked for worship and the Lamb's army is marked for witness and both our worship and our witness need to be about the Lamb and the Lamb only. Thirdly, the Lamb's army is marked for earthly suffering, but eternal rest. The Lamb's army is marked for earthly suffering, but eternal rest. Starting in verse 6, we have these series of angels who are sent out among the earth. Uh, The first announces the eternal gospel to the inhabitants of the earth. Um, That gospel is fear God and give him glory, which seems to be a format of repent and believe the gospel. Fear God, repent, give him glory by believing the gospel. Um, but it does not seem like this is a uh, proclamation that will result in converts, uh, but rather this is preaching to people who have already taken the mark of the beast, who have hardened hearts and is proving the hardness of their hearts. Um, and But it's the one last gospel call, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his, ju- of his judgment has come. Worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs, of water, So it is an announcement to those who aren't worshiping the lamb and his father, who aren't worshiping the creator of heaven and earth to do so, who have not repented and believed the gospel, to repent and believe the gospel. But there are no converts. So a second angel follows and says that it has fallen. Babylon, the great has fallen. She made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. And so the sins of the nations are brought to their attention and the punishment is announced. Uh, The wrath of God is being brought. And then the third angel, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the lamb and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever there is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. And so we see in these verses from verse 6 to verse 11 that those who worship the beast are marked uh, perhaps for earthly prosperity, but ultimately for eternal suffering. And then starting in verse 12, we see the flip side. We see the, the, those marked with the mark of the Lamb. This calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. And this seems to be a non sequitur. John is writing about the wrath of God falling upon the nations, falling upon those who worship the beast and his idol. And yet then he w- makes a very sudden transition and says, This calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. And the implication is that the wrath of God being poured out on the nations, on those who worship the beast, is ultimately going to result in suffering for those who worship the Lamb. That as God's wrath is poured out on the nations, the nations are going to turn and pour out their wrath on Lamb's people. That they're going to pour out their wrath on the people who are keeping God's commands and their faith in Jesus, who are not compromising in their worship or their witness. And so there John is talking about this uh, suffering that is going to go on throughout the church age. And then in verse 13, then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And so again, that ultimately that persecution could lead to death. And so we are promised earthly suffering. We are promised that by being loyal to the lamb, by not giving our worship to the beast or his idol, by not giving our allegiance to the state, to a political party, to a politician, to any earthly kingdom that we might come up with, by giving our loyalty and worship only to the lamb, we are going to experience persecution and suffering At the hands of those who do worship the beast and his idol grant osborne writing on this verse says martyrdom means victory a conquering of satan by participating in the fellowship of jesus's suffering where we reenact jesus's cosmic victory via his death at the same time this blessing cannot be restricted to those who give their lives for christ but encompasses all who die in the Lord. To die in the Lord means to remain faithful to the end, to make Christ the sphere of your life. The important addition of From Now On teaches that this refers not just to the final period of history, but to all the saints down through the ages who remain true to Christ. The period of testing has started and God's people must steel themselves for the difficult days ahead. The Christian life was never meant to be easy. It will always involve sacrifice and suffering and demand a life of continual faithfulness. I love that phrase that Grant Osborne uses, that we need to make Christ the sphere of your life. By taking the mark of the Lamb, or really, as we saw earlier in the book, by being given the mark of the Lamb by God, and being numbered among the 144,000. We are to make Christ the Lamb, the sphere of our life. He is the lens through which we view and interpret all of life. He is the the focal point of our life. And so I think we can kind of see when we start to deviate from the Lamb and start to go over to the beast, because Christ stops being the sphere of our life. And again, I am a chaplain at the Colony of Mercy here at America's Keswick, a residential addiction recovery program for men. And with men and women who are struggling with addiction, it is very easy to see when Christ is no longer the sphere of their life. When their addiction becomes the sphere of their life, it is on display for everyone to see. And in some ways, that's a blessing because there's no way they can hide that. For those of us who might not struggle with something like addiction, Christ can easily cease to be the sphere of our life. And we're not even aware of it. And again, in this season in our country, with not just a pandemic, but a presidential election and societal unrest, things that I've seen, things that I've heard, make it very apparent that for many of us, Christ has stopped being the sphere of our life saw something on social media uh, a little while ago by a believer, someone I know loves Jesus. And yet when met with the news that someone had contracted uh, COVID-19, a loved one of someone uh, in the comments could not even express any empathy or sympathy in the comments on this post of this person being concerned for their loved one had to start rambling on uh, about uh, misinformation by the media and why the president has done the right thing in all of his actions and and the lens through which he interpreted this news uh, about someone who was concerned and about a, a suffering loved one was to filter that news through a political sphere. Politics had become the sphere of life. And it's so easy for us to do, to make politics, to make a personality, to make a societal agenda, to make a point of interest for ourselves, the sphere of our life, instead of making Christ the sphere of our life. And yet that's what we're called to do, and that is difficult. And that does bring opposition. And so that's why we are told, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed are those who remain faithful, even to the point of death, who remain faithful at the very least to the end, Because then in verse 13, all of a sudden the Spirit speaks up. Yes, says the Spirit. Amen, says the Spirit. So they will rest from their labors since their works follow them. Yes, it is difficult to remain faithful to the Lamb in this life. It is difficult to follow the Lamb wherever He goes, even when that's in opposition to our presidential candidate even when that's in opposition to our preferred political party even when that's in opposition to our family dynamics and and all of the different aspects of our lives it is difficult and we will experience earthly suffering but we are blessed when we do because the result is eternal rest The followers of the beast, the worshipers of the beast, those who take his mark may experience prosperity here on this earth, but they are marked for eternal suffering. But those of us who follow the lamb wherever he goes, who remain faithful to the end, we might experience earthly suffering, but we are promised eternal rest. And there is nothing, no loyalty here on this earth, no presidential candidate, no political party, no earthly kingdom that is worth losing eternal rest. We will rest from our labors, but there is no rest day or night for those who receive the mark of the beast. And so the Lamb's army is marked for worship, the Lamb's army is marked for witness, The Lamb's army is marked for earthly suffering, but eternal rest. And finally, the Lamb's army is not marked for fighting. The Lamb's army is not marked for fighting. We've already mentioned the fact that this is an army unlike any other, that it is an army of worshipers, not an army of warriors. Uh, But I think that point does need to be driven home because we don't see any fighting on the part of the 144,000 in this chapter. And in fact, not only do you not see them fighting, but you see them being slaughtered just like the lamb that they follow. And you see that uh, even more so in verses 14 through the end of the chapter as uh, angels are sent out to use their sickle and reap the harvest. And you start to see blood being shed. Grapes are gathered and they are uh, gathered into the great wine press of God's wrath. And then the chapter ends with the press was trampled outside the city and blood flowed out of the press up to the horse's bridles for about 180 miles. And the temptation, I think, here in passages like this is to believe that these are Uh, the followers of the beast who are being slaughtered, and that this is now Christ and his army coming and conquering and shedding the blood of their enemies. And yet that's not what we see here. Um, It's not extremely clear. It's not spelled out who these grapes are, who is being harvested here, who's being trampled outside the city, whose blood is flowing But in the context of the book of revelation it becomes readily apparent there are two types of scenes in the book of revelation where we see blood and the one is when we see things like the rivers being turned to blood and you or bodies of water being turned to blood but then of course there are passages like this one where blood is being shed and every other passage in the book of revelation where blood is shed It is always the blood of the lamb or of his followers. And so I think since this does not explicitly say it's not the lamb's followers whose blood is being shed, given the context of the book of Revelation, I think we need to say that the ones who are being trampled, whose blood is flowing by the end of the chapter 14, it is the blood of the lamb's followers. It is those who did follow the lamb wherever he went, even to the point of bearing witness to the point of death. And now their blood is flowing. But you see that as well. When wrath does get poured out in Revelation chapter 16, as the uh, the blood from chapter 14 seems to be collected in the bowls for the bowl judgments uh, and in Revelation 16 verse six, It says, because they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I think Revelation 16.6 helps us to interpret Revelation 14 and whose blood is being shed. It is the blood of the martyrs. It is the blood of the witnesses, of the saints, of the prophets that will then be collected and those who shed that blood will be forced to drink it as judgment upon themselves. And so the Lamb's army is not marked for fighting. The Lamb's army is being slaughtered just as the Lamb was. And again, this seems to be uh, something that doesn't really make sense to us, especially being from a country that loves war and loves the military and loves weaponry as much as we do in America. But this is the great paradox of our faith. That our God conquers not by conquering, but by being conquered. And the same thing that was true of the Lamb is true of His army. We follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Preston Sprinkle writes, We don't fight with violence because we have a more powerful weapon in our hands. It's called suffering. With it, we can conquer the hard hearts of our enemies, and with it, we condemn unrepentant sinners. He goes on to say, It's impossible for Christians to lose, to be defeated, to be conquered, because the Lamb has already conquered by being slaughtered. Nothing and no one can take away His crown, and therefore nothing can take away our crown. Our enemies can kick us, scourge us, beat us, and crucify us, as they did to our Lord. But they cannot win. They cannot defeat the lamb and his followers. The more they try, the more grapes are thrown into their winepress, and the lamb will make them drink it. And that is what we are called to as those who are marked with the mark of the Lamb, we are called to follow the Lamb wherever He goes, even in His witness, even in His death. And it is by following the Lamb wherever He goes that we do conquer over our enemies. And so the comfort for us, even not just in the pandemic, but especially in a presidential election season, a season of societal unrest, is that we don't have to fight. We don't have to go to war against our neighbors. We don't have to tear them down in Facebook posts, slander them in comments, mumble hateful words under our breath, or pray prayers against them. We conquer by being conquered. If God chooses to allow us to be conquered, it will be for victory and not for defeat. Because again, the focal point of the book of Revelation ultimately is not Christ's return, it's the cross. The way of the Lamb is the way of the cross. And even in a politically charged presidential election season, even in the midst of a pandemic, even in the midst of societal unrest, we who are given the mark of the Lamb are called to follow Him wherever He goes. Thank you for joining us for Revelation chapter 14, and come back next time as we look at Revelation chapter 15.